Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. I'm your host, Jill. Today, I have with me, once again, Dr. James Rosenbaum. We are going to pick up and continue the conversation we had on uveitis and talk a little bit about the microbiome today. So, Dr. Rosenbaum, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It is great to have you back. Uh, We're going to talk about the gut, which is, I know, one of your favorite topics. what is the microbiome? We hear this this name, this word a lot more and more. So the microbiome is the collection of microorganisms that coexists along with humans and virtually any other living species, even plants as well as animals. And while the best known part of the microbiome would be bacteria, there are also yeast or fungi, there are viruses, there are uh, living organisms called archaea, there are parasites, there are helminths. Um, so it, it's quite varied. Bacteria dominate, and they dominate in terms of the research, but they're not the only constituent of the microbiome. And most of the microbiome in us lives in the gut. But there's a microbiome in our mouth. There's a microbiome on our skin. And every part of the skin is different in terms of the environment, the moisture, the acidity, the P, you know, the pH. So different bugs live underneath your chin, as opposed to on your forehead, different bugs live next to your molar as opposed to your incisor. Different bugs live at one millimeter beneath your gingiva as opposed to three millimeters beneath your gingiva. And there's a microbiome um, in the vagina. There's a microbiome on the surface of your eye. So um, they're, they're different um, bacterial organisms living in different regions of the body. In my head, I'm picturing a forest where yeah. different things grow in different parts of the forest because of the light or the moisture or uh, that's fascinating. No, so perfect analogy, you know, the, the crops we grow in Oregon are different from the crops that are grown in Kansas. Right. So, you know, different bacteria have adapted to compete and to survive, and they prefer different environments. There are some bacteria that live, you know, 30,000 feet below the surface of the ocean and other bacteria that live 10,000 feet above the surface of the earth on a a high mountain, and they're probably not the same ones. No, I bet not. Um, So today we're going to get into a little bit about a conversation that talks about the the connection between ankylosing spondylitis and the gut or the microbiome. Uh, what is that connection that we know? 
Terrific question. Um, maybe I could tell you an anecdote that's very personal, which is how I became interested in the connection. Um, after you, you finish your medical training, you do your internship, your residency, then you do a fellowship. And I did my fellowship at Stanford uh, to try to become a, a rheumatologist. And I started my fellowship about six years after the connection between HLA B27 and ankylosing spondylitis was realized. And HLA B27 not only predisposes to ankylosing spondylitis, it also predisposes to reactive arthritis, which is arthritis after certain bacterial infections like Shigella or Salmonella or a bug called Yersinia. And um, that alone, those are bugs that live in the gut. So that alone might suggest that, gee, there is a relationship between bacteria and something in the spondyloarthritis family. As a fellow, I was pretty naive. Uh, and I thought, I'm going to understand this disease by taking some of these bacteria that cause reactive arthritis, and I'll put them into a laboratory rodent, and the rodent's going to get arthritis, and then I'm going to be able to, to study it and understand it. So I took rats, and into their foot pad, I injected killed bacteria, like killed salmonella and killed shigella. And then I'd come and I'd visit the rats every day and I'd look and see if their paws were swollen or their tail seemed stiff or anything. Just didn't happen. But they got red eyes. And just out of sheer luck, my cousin was in ophthalmology training at Stanford. And I said, Cousin Bob, can you tell me what's going on with these eyes? And he said, sure. Just put them in some fixative and I'll send them to the pathologist and I'll get back to you. And he got back to me and he said, hey, all these rats have got iritis, uveitis. And he thought that was neat. I didn't think it was so good because I was like every other internist in the country virtually. I had no idea what uveitis meant. So, um, but it turned out that I was injecting certain bacterial products, in particular one called lipopolysaccharide, which is also known as endotoxin. And I could put the endotoxin in the foot of a rat and within 24 hours, almost universally, there'd be inflammation in the eye of the rat. So that you know, alerted me to the idea that bacterial products could do something to the eye, even if not directly injected into the eye, they could somehow get transported potentially to the eye. Um, so, you know, that, that research progressed, but I, in my own opinion, it really took off about 10, 15 years ago when the connection between the microbiome and the immune system was appreciated. So the, we've always known that there are a lot of bacteria in our gut, but we haven't been able to study them. And 
that's because the, the medical term for these bacteria would be that they are fastidious. They're very, very particular about their living environment. And what they dislike the most in their environment is oxygen. So they are anaerobic. And that's why they live deep in the gut. And that's why you don't find them on the skin or on the eye or in the mouth. So the cost of doing DNA sequencing has plummeted. And when the cost got low enough, all of a sudden we could begin to characterize the bacteria that are in our gut, not by doing cultures, which are very difficult because again, we have to culture in anaerobic conditions and many of the bacteria will not survive. But instead we do the characterization by sequencing the DNA. And then we make catalogs and libraries. And if we find a certain DNA, we say, oh, this probably belongs to Ruminococcus. And this probably belongs to Klebsiella. This probably belongs to E. coli. And this is Salmonella, Shigella, et cetera. So um, my research um, kind of in some ways stagnated until the technology came along to allow to say, oh, wow, we have all these bacteria educating our immune system. Let's start to understand that as best we can. And now, you know, Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, personality, autism, they're, they're all being related to the microbiome. And in, in some cases, probably the microbiome just has a, a very small effect. But in reactive arthritis, the microbiome has a huge effect. And I'd like to believe that the microbiome has a huge effect in ankylosing spondylitis. And maybe the, the best argument for that is that we do have uh, models in mice and in rats where the animals get a disease that's a lot like ankylosing spondylitis. And with mice and rats, we can raise them so that they don't have a microbiome. And we do wow. that. We do that. It's when you were born, if your mother delivered you vaginally, as soon as you went through that vaginal canal, you got exposed to bacteria and your gut started to get colonized. But if you were born by a cesarean section, you didn't get that colonization. You didn't get that colonization until you started sucking your thumb or <laughs> had your first mother's milk or formula, okay? So if we take a mouse, deliver the, the babies by C-section, and then sterilize all the food before it's fed to the mouse and put a special filter over the cage so that the air gets filtered and the bacteria don't come in through the air, that mouse doesn't get a microbiome. And in the mouse and the rat models of spondylitis, they also don't get spondylitis. Wow. 
I got to pause for a second and digest it. <laughs> no pun intended. It, but this is massive systems thinking, right? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the bacteria outnumber our cells, right? The, yeah. We have more bacteria than we have human cells. And um, they they interact with our immune system constantly. Um, I, ha I have friends who have delivered children by C-section, and they make sure that the baby gets exposed to vaginal juice right away. Really? Um, yeah, because if, if you're a mouse, it, for many, many months after you're born, your immune system is different if you had a C-section delivery as opposed to a vaginal delivery, whether or not the food is sterilized. You know, So the, the microbiome in the gut, I, I liken to the weeds in your lawn that once they find their niche and they get in there, getting rid of them is not easy. Um, so what you get... If, exposed to on the day you're born has probably a lifetime effect on your body. And it affects our body, particularly in AS, the theory is that it affects our body through increased joint pain or inflammation or what well, other ways? Well, so ankylosing spondylitis is an immune mediated disease, right? So our immune system would be our white blood cells, of which there are many different types, but the lymphocytes are um, probably best implicated, although there's white blood cells called neutrophils and eosinophils and basophils. They may have a role as well, but lymphocytes are probably the dominant factor in most immune-mediated diseases. And um, those lymphocytes uh, are in the bowel wall and they're circulating. And there's some clever ways that we can track them and show that they move from the gut to the joint, from the gut to the lung, from the gut to the eye. Um, there's some very specialized um, cells that especially migrate, the ones, some are called mate cells, M-A-I-T, mucosal associated immune T cells. Some are called innate lymphoid cells that do this migration. We, we did, it's been a number of years ago, but my colleagues in the laboratory and I um, studied a, a mouse that um, was what's called a transgenic mouse. We had given the mouse a, an additional gene, right? And the gene we gave it was the gene that makes the pigment that's responsible for fall. So it's a pigment that when it encounters light of a certain wavelength, it changes color. Huh. You got it? Yeah. It, and the, the mouse was first created in Japan. And I think the, I'm going to mispronounce this, but the, the Japanese word for this pigment is KD mouse, K-A-E-D-E, -E. all right? Then we knew that some of these, that, that all the cells in the body would have it, and some of these cells would be the lymphocytes that would be in the gut wall. So we designed a colonoscope for a mouse. Oh. I didn't do it, but I had a, a friend who was an expert with light, and he made a little fiber optic you know, light probe. And 
we could thread that up the rectum of the mouse into the gut and the light would emit a certain wavelength that would activate this KD pigment. But the only cells that got activated were the ones that were near the light, the ones that were in the gut. And then we could trace where they had gone throughout. And some of them, if we inflamed the eye, went to the eye. So we weren't the first to do this. It was a Harvard scientist um, who generously provided the mice to us and showed us how to make the colonoscope. It wasn't our original idea. Our original idea was to see if they went to the eye. Um, but it's clear that there's a circulation of these lymphocytes from the gut to joints and other parts of the body and um, exactly what that migration means. Are they migrating there because they're, why they do that? How, why did that evolutionary event occur? I, I don't know, <laughs> but yeah, and do I, I do remember hearing an abstract on some research that looking at, I don't remember if it was lymphocytes or tryptophan that moves from the gut to the joint. And in people with certain diseases that creates inflammation and in people with out certain diseases, mm -hmm. it may not create inflammation. So it has different it can respond differently in different disease presentations. Christy Kuhn is a rheumatologist. Yes, that's who it was. Who's done a lot of that type of uh, very innovative and very seminal research. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it fascinates me. So is, do we know enough to know at this point, is the microbiome the same or is it different across different types of spondyloarthritis? Great question. Um, so I, I think there are 30 or more different studies that have attempted to characterize the microbiome in ankylosing spondylitis. And, um, you know, it makes a difference whether you get the specimen from the ileum with a scope or you get it from the rectum. It makes a difference whether you do the study in Portland, Oregon, or in Miami. It makes a difference whether you study a vegetarian or a meat eater. It makes a difference if you study someone who's 15 as opposed to 55. Um, it, there are lots and lots of variables, and it makes a difference whether you study AXPA or spondyloarthritis, whether you study inflammatory bowel disease as opposed to straightforward ankylosing spondylitis or psoriatic arthritis. So of all the 30 studies that have been published, I think everyone finds, concludes that, yeah, it's different. I, and obviously the medications too uh, affect what's in the microbiome. So it's different, but it shouldn't surprise you that what the doctors in Belgium said was the difference is not the same as what the doctors in Portland, Oregon say is the difference. And is it, I would assume it's different across gender and ethnicity? Well, ethnicity, you know, makes a difference, but um, let's say you're Asian American, it, you know, living in America would make it different from living in Asia as well. So, right. 
ethnicity and environment are both clearly important. Diet is extremely important. That was my next question. Yeah. No, it, just as different bacteria are going to live on your cheek as opposed to your chin, um, the you are what you eat. And the substrate, the food that you provide, makes a difference. The plants that grow in the desert are different from the plants that grow in the Northwest rainforest are different from the vegetation in the Arctic Circle. So um, diet profoundly affects the, the microbiome. I wonder if we'll come back and find someday, I'm a big believer in Ayurveda, which prescribes eating local mm -hmm. food that is in season. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if our wonderful world, right, is giving us that food in a specific place for a specific reason related mm -hmm. to our, our microbiome. I wonder if we'll come back to uh, really eating locally mm -hmm. and uh, and finding that that makes a difference. I don't know. That's... Yeah. Well, the, the eye inflammation, the iritis that's associated with ankylosing spondylitis is clearly seasonal. And there are different reasons why it might be seasonal, but one would be that different bacteria are more prevalent in the spring as opposed to the fall and different foods are more common in the spring as opposed to the fall. So, um, you know, teasing out cause and effect of that kind of observation is, is not easy, but it's fun to spin hypotheses to try to explain it. Oh, in my head, I'm bumbling on, or I'm bubbling on like a, uh, how can you, can you, what does a Granger causality model look like around this? <laughs> uh, that's that's the data nerd in me. Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, I, one other thing that, that's worth explaining about the, the microbiome is, I like to think of the microbiome in the gut as sort of like a river. And in a river, there are fish that really like to stay in the middle of the stream. They like the deeper water. They like, you know, faster flowing water. And there are other fish that go off to the side and they nibble at the side and they find, you know, their, their food um, near, the, near the shore, right? Near the edge of the, the riverbed. If you're a bacteria, it's probable it's the same thing. There probably are certain bacteria that would like to stay in the middle. And there are other bacteria that like to cling to the surface or the epithelium of the colon or the small intestine. If you cling to the surface of the epithelium of the small intestine, that allows the immune system to sense that you're there and to interact with these lymphocytes. Whereas if you're in the middle of the stream, the immune system has no way to detect you. So when we collect poop and analyze what's in poop, we're probably analyzing lots of bacteria that, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're not directly relevant to the immune system. And we think that a clever way to get around that is to look for the bacteria that have evidence that immunoglobulin is on their surface. So the body's immune system produces these proteins called immunoglobulins that protect us. 
And in particular, in the gut, they make an immunoglobulin called IgA. And some bacteria in your stool are coated with IgA and some are not. And we think that the ones that are coated by IgA are the ones most likely to educate and affect and alter sometimes our immune system. Interesting. So there's IgA and IgB or IgG? Yeah, there, there are five different immunoglobulin classes, A, G, E, M, and D. Um, but the one that is most uh, prevalent in our blood is IgG. But, and so, you know, we, there's an old saying, half of what you learn in medical school is wrong. <laughs> and the, the, the art is to figure out which 50% is wrong. And it, it's like, what's going to be proved wrong? Well, so when I went to medical school, I learned that the most common immunoglobulin was IgG. But it turns out that your body makes much more IgA than IgG, even though the IgA in the blood is maybe a fifth of the IgG. But the IgA is in your intestine and in your saliva and in your mucus, and it's getting passed out of the body constantly. So your body's making more of the IgA, but there's less of the IgA present in your bloodstream. Inflow, outflow. <laughs> it's about uh, And is there any research on how the different medications or treatments affect the gut? Not as much, um, but now I think almost any company developing a biologic will include in that study, how does that medication that affect the immune system affect the microbiome? And um, in um, one study, my, my colleague and I were asked to write a commentary about a paper from NYU by Jose Scher and his colleagues that showed that some of the um, treatment that we use to treat ankylosing spondylitis like TNF inhibitors and anti-IL-17s will increase yeast in the stool. Not too surprising because um, IL-17, for example, is very important in your body's response to a fungus. So if you knock it down, you get more, more yeast. So we, we called our commentary uh, drugs, bugs, and shrugs. And the, <laughs> the shrugs were for what we didn't understand. Uh, so, um, but it is, it's definitely true that, that medications uh, affect the microbiome. And it's, it's circular. So methotrexate, for example, is a standard drug to treat um, rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. We don't use it too much for ankylosing spondylitis. But bacteria metabolize the methotrexate and the methotrexate changes the bacteria. And it's, it's circular. Um, so 
there's even a, a, a field called pharmacomicrobiomics. <laughs> That's a mouthful. You know, Tylenol. Tylenol gets, you know, is metabolized by our microbiome. And, you know, we know when we give somebody with rheumatoid arthritis methotrexate, two thirds are going to get better, but one third don't. And it may well be that if we could change the microbiome, we could enhance the effectiveness of the medicine. And um, the, the, Nobel, the Nobel Prize in medicine was given a couple of years ago for what are called checkpoint inhibitors. These are uh, therapies for cancer. They're monoclonal antibodies that activate the immune system to get rid of cancers like, well, melanomas were one of the first targets, but now there, there are dozens of cancers for which checkpoint inhibitors are being given. But guess what? The effectiveness of the checkpoint inhibitor depends on your microbiome. And there are active studies being done to try to change the microbiome to improve the efficacy of the checkpoint inhibitors. I'm going to go off script just a second. <laughs> okay. A lot of discussion around the gut balance, microbiome. We hear a lot of talk about antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And was that one of the first areas where people went, wow, these things are really messing with our little forest? Yes. Yeah. And and probably not in a good way. I mean, if, if you were to take an antibiotic every day, um, the bacteria would develop resistance. And let's say your antibiotic kills 99.9% .9 of the bacteria. Well, that would mean that one out of every thousand bacteria is not killed. And if you started out with a billion, you'd be down to a million, but that's plenty to start dividing and repopulating and be resistant. Yeah. So, Antibiotics have a very transient effect on the microbiome, and mostly what they do is encourage bacteria that are resistant to them. Interesting. Okay, I'll go back on script. Uh, there's been tons of research out there on microbiome. Has it resulted in any new treatment options or approaches for AS? For AS... I think we're still in a learning stage. We're still in the potential stage. Um, ulcerative colitis is a disease that overlaps considerably with AS. And there are clinical trials with ulcerative colitis showing that doing FMT, fecal microbiome transplant, is effective in ameliorating that disease. Uh, but I'm not aware of a clinical trial in ankylosing spondylitis. Um, my colleagues and I are doing a clinical trial where we're trying to alter the yeast in the stool because um, we have a, a patron who believes that a fungus called malassezia may be causally related. And so we're trying to... Um, give antifungal antibiotics to change the malassezia. Um, 
but I I don't know of a fecal transplant study in ankylosing spondylitis per se, but it okay. works in ulcerative colitis and the extrapolation would be, it could work. Now, I, I should share with you too a, an irony, and that is a year ago, a very well-designed study was published in the Annals of Rheumatic Disease on psoriatic arthritis and the microbiome. And it showed that the transplant made things worse. Now, I think that means the transplant worked. <laughs> right. Because as, as a theoretician, it meant that the microbiome was important in affecting the immune response. And if we found the right bugs, we could make it better. Right. And a fecal transplant is a poop transplant. Is that right? Or, you know, so um, yes and no. Okay. So the, the disease where fecal transplants are fantastic is um, what's called Clostridia difficile colitis, C. diff colitis. And the, the typical C. diff colitis patient has been in the hospital for a long time, been getting lots of broad spectrum antibiotics and the antibiotics get rid of the normal bacteria, but C. diff is not killed by the antibiotics. And C. diff proliferates and causes even death sometimes, very severe colitis. So you start to treat it by giving vancomycin, which is an antibiotic that kills C. diff, but that doesn't always work. What works most of the time in these refractory cases is to give a fecal transplant. And then when we're talking about a fecal transplant, it could be given by an enema. It could be given in a capsule. You wouldn't swallow feces. You'd filter out the bacteria in the feces. And you have to be very careful because what if you took the stool from someone who had COVID and didn't know it? What if you took the stool from someone who had hepatitis C and didn't know it? Um, the, there was a, a paper in the New England Journal once where someone said, you know, I've had ulcerative colitis, I'm going to get better, and I'll use my child's stool because I'm sure that'll be safe. And the child had a viral infection with cytomegalovirus and the, uh, the dad almost died from, you know, self-infecting, you know, infecting himself with his child's poop. Right. Um, and there are companies now that um, are creating artificial poop. <laughs> that is, they're taking a consortium of bacteria that's meant to mimic the broad diversity in the stool. It doesn't get quite as diverse, but it gets, say, the 40 most common, and then use that for fecal transplant, which the argument would be would be safer, you know, because you've cultivated it instead of just taking it from people. People are dangerous, right? Right. Very, uh, not very good specimens. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, so my last question is related to research. I know there have been a number of research opportunities out there uh, when it comes to microbiome. 
do you know of any current opportunities that there are for patients to join uh, that studying the link between gut and micro or gut and AS? Um, well, so uh, my I, I've left the Oregon Health and Science University, but I still have colleagues there with whom I collaborate and, and we're very actively doing it. The group in Colorado is doing some very original research. The group at NYU is doing some very original research. There are groups uh, in Europe, and I'm sure that um, some people are mad at me because I've omitted mentioning them. There are pediatric groups with Matthew Stoll, for example. Um, so there, there definitely is ongoing research. And we are, as I said, doing an active intervention study to target malassezia, this yeast, which we think might be causally related. Um, but there, yes, there are research studies that are ongoing. Um, there's a website called clinicaltrials.gov. If you're in the United States and you're doing an interventional study, you should register it on clinicaltrials.gov. Um, I haven't tried to go there and search you know, using the terms microbiome and ankylosing spondylitis or axial spondyloarthropathy, but um, it, it is a a very robust website for providing information on clinical trials. But um, I'd be delighted if if any of your listeners wanted to see if malassezia was causally related to to their disease. Okay, fair enough. We will uh, connect you if they reach out. And uh, and then I do know, of course, on the SAA website, spondylitis.org, there is a spot where people can look at participating in research related to spondyloarthritis, which would be one spot. And I believe I participated in one at some point over the last couple of years. So and which is super simple and you got to give your some of your blood and some of the, your other bits to research. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, there definitely are companies that, you know, will analyze your microbiome for you. Yeah. Um, it gives you lots of information. We're not quite sure what to do with that information. Do you see over time uh, that we may shift toward different panels for understanding different diseases based on microbiome? I, I think so. I, I think, you know... Um, I'm biased, but I, I believe that the microbiome is a huge component to many diseases. You know, we have two genomes. We have the genome we're born with, and that's not easy to change. And then the genome that grows within us, and that's not easy to change either, but it's easier. And it's, yeah. it's an important genome. Um, and I think in... Ankylosing spondylitis, reactive arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, heart disease, and maybe Alzheimer's and autism and others. Um, it's it's really important. So yeah, uh, and I think even in the in the context of diet in general, I think you know one of the things I remember ten years ago, my rheumatologist saying was reduce the sugar, and I think now we're finding a high sugar diet unbalances the microbiome. So just, I think over, I, I'm fascinated to see what happens with this. This is by far mm -hmm. one of the most interesting things I have 
ever tried to read up on. And I'm, I'm nowhere near you, by the way. <laughs> uh, so on that note, I, I think, where do you, where do you see this going or what do you find hopeful, most hopeful about this, the research on microbiome and where, where the world is trending on it, especially for AS patients? Well, you know, it, it seems that we're not making progress, right? Because here we're talking about the microbiome, but we still don't have an intervention that allows us to treat or prevent this disease. But in point of fact, the revolution is new. So the Human Microbiome Project, I think, started in 2006, 2007. That was the effort to try to characterize it. It's it's not much more than 15, 17 years old. Yeah. So with time and with improving technology and with research funding and curiosity, we are going to understand which bugs are critical and we're going to be able to manipulate the genome of those bugs. And, um, I, you know, I, <laughs> I think that sometime medical students are going to read about ankylosing spondylitis, but never see a case of ankylosing spondylitis. I that really, would be wonderful. I really think that that's a possibility, but it's going to take time and research and maybe a little luck. Yeah. Well, I'm up for all of it. <laughs> so thank you again for joining us. This has been fascinating. No, really thanks, on part yeah. two. And uh, I am really excited to hear how this all plays out over my lifetime anyway. Yes. Um, I, it, it's a fascinating story and it only gets more interesting. Um, I think if you were to graph the number of papers that are written in the microbiome, it would definitely be an exponential curve where uh, the interest is soaring. Awesome. I love it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And again, thank you for your commitment and all you do for this community. We really appreciate you. Thanks for the opportunity and thank you for your insightful questions. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.